we were fed, we were changed, and uh, God forbid there was an outbreak on our floor, we didn't even get our two showers a week. I said, are you kidding me? So we're stuck, dirty, in our room. Anytime a staff got suspicion of the test of COVID, we suffered. We didn't get even get a shower for those two weeks. It was just so ridiculous, inhumane. So the question is, how do we bring rights and attention to the people that live in these facilities? Well, journalists were not talking to them. But for that reporting to have not evolved at all over the course of the pandemic was was shocking, like un- unacceptable, shocking, d- a disaster, a complete abdication of the role of the press in this country. Long-term care seems to be basically a no-fly zone for rights. Increasingly, over the course of the pandemic, I have been struck by the void of any sense of rights in long-term care. The right of choice, the right to dignity and respect, the right to ask for something and get it. And getting something might be timely help getting to the toilet, having the front desk staff make sure you get your Christmas meal left by a dear friend. Choice might be using a walker instead of being stuck in a wheelchair. Dignity might be the right to a shower so you don't smell. Think about being denied the right to walk, having to pee in your pull-ups if you know you need the toilet, feeling dirty knowing that you smell because you haven't had a shower in 10 days. I mean, really put yourself in that place. COVID in the House of Old, Episode 3, Rights in Elder Care. My summer 2020 awareness began with the realization that long-term care residents were being kept in isolation to, quote, keep them safe. They were being kept in isolation for extraordinarily long periods of time. Families were being denied access, often in an arbitrary and inconsistent fashion. Workers also caught my eye. The poor wages, the long hours, the lack of PPE. And then there was the plight of younger adults who might spend decades in a care facility which would meet their basic body needs, but fail to nurture their whole selves. I have pulled together a number of experts for this podcast. Some of them are scholars, others hold experiential knowledge. To help me work through some of the places where rights in long-term care seem to be on very shaky ground. Life without risk is boring. The way we define risk makes a huge difference because what we found out, of course, is that isolating someone in their room in the name of safety puts them at risk of dying of loneliness. We took an enormous risk, barring families and volunteers from long-term care, a risk that undoubtedly contributed to people dying. That's sociologist Pat Armstrong, who has spent the last decade as project lead on an international study of promising practices in long-term care. Pat, I have this clear memory of you querying why elderly people in care facilities weren't allowed to work with sharp knives. And it was one of my, oh, that's so obvious moments, because for anyone who has ever done regular food prep, this is very much the kind of overlearned skill that you hold on to. As long as I'm physically capable, I will probably be able to dice vegetables or core an apple because I do that on a daily basis. 
Why would I lose my capacity for this simply because I had moved into a long-term care facility? Yes, I agree with you that we we seem to think that it's a bit like going to prison. You've you've given up your rights when you've uh, when you've gone to into a care home. Although that again, we're talking about patterns, and we've certainly been in places where that's not the case, where where residents did have a say, where a lot of effort was put into building on the capacities that people had to allow them to direct uh, their own lives, to have a drink of beer when they wanted one, cut up the onions if they that's what they wanted to do, instead of um, folding towels over and over again, which was a common activity. Because and one of the things that COVID has really revealed is the extent to which we rely on families and volunteers to do a great deal of the work because we don't have enough staff. And we had, of course, even less staff during this. And so, so we have to both balance the risks that there are there and think about the trade-off we have between one risk and another, but also to think about we have to take risks in order to have some forms of joy or some pleasure. As we saw in our studies, people walk into a long-term care home they put them in a wheelchair because they're very afraid of falling and falling is, is seen as one of the worst things you can do and it's one of the things that get counted against you. So put people in a wheelchair and within weeks they can't walk anymore. They're not falling, but they're not walking either. So we have to start thinking more broadly, it seems to me, about risk and about the trade-offs. We traded off families and visitors coming into long-term care in the name of keeping people in long-term care safe from people who might bring in uh, the disease. But in the process, we actually killed people from loneliness and from lack of care. And the doctors didn't go in and the inspectors didn't go in and the visitors didn't go in. Visitors and families are not only uh, important for providing care and company, they are also critical as advocates and people for watching uh, what's going on and keeping an eye on what's there. So you don't have any outsiders coming in to protect and demand the rights of the people who are there. Some of whom, as you know, can't speak, can't walk, can't use the technology. They need to have uh, people who can help them communicate and, and express and demand their own rights. What Pat is setting out is a rights deficit that already existed in long-term care, but was exacerbated during the pandemic. So even before COVID, the response of the state and many long-term care institutions was to operate with this heightened sense of risk around elderly residents. But what I take away is that residential facilities for the elderly, already an institution that existed at one remove from society, moved even further away, and that this shift resulted in the further erosion of resident rights. The deprivations that elders had to endure in the name of safety became unbearable. So I asked Canadian journalist Nora Loretto, who has just published the book Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic, what she sees as the failure of mainstream media to ask difficult questions, to pursue stories, to use critical thinking skills, and to get at the resident experience. 
when you're reading 100 articles a day um, because of this pandemic, you start to see patterns and you start to see um, very clearly the failures of mainstream media to, to tell these stories. And it was it was impossible to be able to talk about COVID and the story of how COVID was told without actually addressing what really was the elephant in the room, which was our scribes, the people who are supposed to be giving us the information and, 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 and interpreting the data and giving us analysis, had by and large failed to do so in any way that was sufficient. And so we would hear a politician's press conference and then all of the news right after would be literally what was just said at the politician's press conference. And, you know, that might be fine for the first couple of weeks when everybody's trying to get their sea legs and and it's all confusing and what's going on. Um, But for that to have been the case in May 2020, for that to still be the case in July or in November 2020, or God forbid the same exact reporting happening in January 2021, where public health says, oh, see this massive outbreak happening in, in Barrie at this place called Roberta Place. Oh, it's the variant. It's that's what this is, is the variant. And every single journalist saying, oh, it's the variant. And 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 you got CBC's national uh, current affairs program in the morning, the current saying, oh, this is the variant. This this is the variant. And then you read the inspection reports from the Ministry of Health and they're like, or the Ministry of Long Term Care. And they say, well, you know, there was no cohorting of of COVID positive and COVID negative patients. People were still sharing rooms. COVID positive patients were wandering in the hallways. And it's like, oh, that sounds like the variant. All right. You know, and so it was just this like in, in, extremely lazy reporting that I I had no it, I had no problem with in in March understanding the circumstances everybody was working under. It felt very scary to go outside. It was very difficult to do your job. Journalists were shut in and then all of a sudden had to keep doing the reporting from home. I mean, it was chaotic. But for that reporting to have not evolved at all over the course of the pandemic was was uh I, I don't know, shocking. Like un, unacceptable, shocking, di- a disaster, a complete abdication of the role of the press in this country. And so it's not too surprising that like there was no advocacy in the press for Canadians to say, well, you know, Canadians are suffering. Maybe this needs to happen or need- this needs to happen. It was literally the advocacy from the public health and the politicians that was like, oh, well, you know, wash your hands and stay safe. And oh, now get your vaccine. This is going to end because of the vaccine. There is, you know, obviously there's exceptions to this. There were some excellent uh, investigations and some very deep reporting that happened, but it was unfortunately rare, like compared to the incredible volume every single day. Yeah. And it occurs to me hearing you say that, that it would actually have been helpful for families and friends of people who were either stranded in long-term care or had died there to have a basket of understanding. You know, it's easier to hold pain if you can give it a shape, if you can kind of feel that there's other people out there. I'm thinking really in, in the mainstream media, like how often did we hear the voices from someone inside of a long-term care facility? And it was so rare. Um, I think I can think of one, only one interview the question is, how do we bring rights and attention to the people that live in these facilities? Well, journalists were not talking to them. And and yeah, it, it can be difficult to talk to them. But I mean, I, I had no problem just doing an interview with someone that lives in a facility for this article that I just wrote. Um, you have to have a, like you have to know why that's important. And the entire pandemic was being told by journalists 
who often had absolutely no contact with this industry. So either they have no parents or family members living in it. They're certainly not essential caregivers. A lot of them are, are the age of having young children, right? So they're essential caregivers to their kids. And so you saw a lot of stories about daycare, <laughs> but you didn't see the same amount of attention on um, the role that, that essential caregivers and the way that, that the residents themselves experience their day-to-day lives. Family and inspectors were absent. The press wasn't on it. We've also heard a bit during the pandemic of the tendency of coroners to disregard deaths in long-term care. I asked socio-legal theorist Jen Rinaldi what she thought. Like, you reference coroners' inquests, and that can be a tool that leads to systemic action. So can a public inquiry, which has, like, more mechanisms that will force the actors implicated to testify Maybe we need those mechanisms to speak to what happens in these spaces. Although a lot of that work has, like, there's already been reports on the violence of long-term care, and we just haven't done anything with it. So I, I, maybe what you're speaking to is, like, enshrining something like patient rights. I mean, the legal regulations that manage long-term care homes haven't been enforced. Like, they don't extend well enough to privatize facilities uh, and the fact that there can be privately owned and run facilities in the long-term care context means that you have like far more of a a wild west in terms of rights violations or violations to patient dignity. I can imagine a kind of enshrining of patient rights into regulatory law Uh, that maybe looks a little bit like tenant rights. I just see part of the problem is that the responses focus on specifics instead of giving context. For example, the report out of Quebec from the Ombuds Office, and they're very much about hours of care, about regulations. They're not getting to that cultural heart of these institutions where the institutions are not run as institutions of care, but are more like an institutional parody of care, delivered as cheaply as possible with a focus on efficiency. The negation of workers' job satisfaction and support, lack of professional development, and no acknowledgement of the expertise that care involves. And they don't take into account that kind of power over culture that you and I know is endemic to institutions which house marginalized people. For me, there needs to be a kind of rethinking within institutions and almost like an educational piece for people. But there are some residents who push back, specifically young adults in long-term care facilities, an overlooked group in an overlooked institution. Dream Bible lives at the City of Toronto's Castleview-Witchwood Care Facility, which actually has a young adult unit, a rarity in the system. Doreen, thank you so much for talking with me because we don't hear very much from residents in long-term care these days. Tell me about asserting your rights several months into the pandemic. Even from the beginning, we were the lost voices. Everybody kept doing the news and we were numbers, but we were not people. So yeah, and I got to resent resident uh, staff and I apologized afterwards. I'm not verbal about saying that, but I would hear them. I'd shift change. Good luck. I'm out of here. And I thought, gee, I wish I had that luxury. 
I felt, and I know what solitary confinement is like now. I really do. And I was one of the first residents, and that happened. Okay, we were contained. Finally, we were allowed to just go out and wash our hands and, and just go to the nurse's station if need be, not leave our floor and go right back in the room. We were just, it was like a warden walking around. And I said, I'd like some fresh air because by that time it was April, May. And they said, no, we couldn't possibly allow you to do that. And that's even prisoners in prison get a one hour around the pen. So I contact our, our counselor here and Mayor Tory's office could reach forward, and I don't like Ford anyways. And I said, do we not deserve the same? I said, it could be done safely, floor by floor, a couple of residents at a time. And they did it, and it felt like, I, I couldn't even describe it. The fresh air hitting your face, the, hearing the birds just, and they brought other residents out. There was a little Korean lady, I'll never forget her face. She she couldn't speak English. She put her hands up, her arms up to the sky, almost in, in joy of the sun washing on her. It just indescribable. This woman, I didn't know her, and she doesn't speak. She basically, with her action, what we all felt, and we were stuck. We were we were in prison in our room, and I didn't like where my mind was going. A lot of residents upstairs, the elderly residents. They're 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 gone. I used to speak with them all the time, and they did, they don't know who I am. They just they gave up, and it was just unfortunate because COVID hit, and they survived COVID. But it's very sad. Doreen, I've been so good during this podcast, but you just brought me to tears. And you're gonna make me do a joke. Honestly, what you're saying is beyond belief. I'm gonna be thinking of that diminutive. Korean woman lifting her hands to the sky for such a long time. So Doreen, I've asked all my big questions, but I'm curious. Before you came to live in Castleview, were you kind of an uppity activist person or was this the first time? You're going to laugh. I was um, pizza mom at my kid's school. I was, a, I was a behind the scenes kind of person, no. But it took coming in here, experiencing experiencing everything I have it's just sort of and I still don't want to be on any anything but it, this is important to me this is important to me so I want it out there so no I was not a, I was pizza lady okay how do we understand an institution that is supposed to be about care it's in the name long-term care for God's sakes being so uncaring Two of my podcast interviewees had concepts that brought the negation of rights in long-term care into sharp focus. Jen, I wanted to hear more about how you use the concept of institutional violence. My academic soulmate, uh, Kate Rosser, and I have taken up a lot of projects on institutional violence as this overarching concept. So violence that uh, is specific to institutional space. Uh, and that would be like an Irving Goffman term, this idea of total institutionalization. It has historically been like large scale brick and mortar buildings uh, that house a population that shares an identity trait in common and will experience rigid routine um, and a, an imbalanced relationship with uh, their managers or staff. 
and a kind of isolation from regular social participation. So those conditions of an institution, which happens in facilities that housed disabled people historically, it happens in uh, prison settings, it happened in residential schools, like all spaces where violence was common. Um, so we've been trying to make sense of like how violence is um, inherent to institutional functioning. I can see that you see violence, you interpret or, or use the concept of violence in a much more like almost, I don't want to belittle it, but kind of a mundane, everyday practices of institutions. Yeah, I would say that that is accurate. Uh, we've looked before at continuums of violence on hot versus cold forms of violence. So you have pretty egregious forms of violence still, like physical abuse, sexual violence, open humiliation of, of residents. Institutional cultures make violence more acceptable. So if violence is like broadly defined, like it's going to be marked by uh, invasion of, of bodily autonomy, like a, a kind of encroachment upon your, your physical or material body. And it's usually a curtailment of liberty. I'm very interested in how you apply that concept of institutional violence to what the pandemic has opened up in terms of a window into residential care facilities for the elderly. It wasn't a surprise to read some of the reports on uh, long-term care facilities because people have been writing on long-term care for a long time now, but it, it felt like striking and familiar to know that isolation that was exacerbated through the pandemic. As a kind of public health measure, people were kept from their families and from caregivers who could advocate for their needs, which is actually common uh, to you know traditional institutional models. People can be made to feel like less than human if they are poorly fed. People end up alone and without like support to manage their bathroom needs, which can be so uncomfortable and humiliating. There were reports that emerged, and this is a function of being overworked, uh, but still there's no excuse. Like there are staff who have hit and slapped and pinched the people who are in their care. And a lot of those conditions predate COVID. I think COVID shed light on how long-term care has long been a space of incredible violence. God, COVID made everything worse. Uh, uh, with conditions like that, um, we just were ill-equipped as, I guess, a province, as a country, to uh, protect our most vulnerable from a condition that led to mass death. Australian legal researcher and educator Linda Steele looks at the intersections of disability law and social justice, and she's developed the notion of disability-specific lawful justice. Linda, can you explain what you mean by this and help us use it to understand the impossibility of resident power in the current long-term care system? This issue of disability-specific lawful violence, which is a bit of a mouthful to say, is really drawing attention to the fact that there are many things that happen to people with disability that the law doesn't recognise as violence but are experienced by people with disability as violation and happen by reason of the social and legal um, views that we have about uh, people with disability. 
those disabilities then become a basis for uh, aged care facilities to use um, restrictive practices. Particularly a common is the use of uh, medication to sedate people, but also using things to stop people from moving when they're seated or also bed rails to stop people from moving from their beds. Restriction or forms of violence are justified as being about protecting people, about you know ensuring they're going to get good care. A lot of it is actually about um, you know economic efficiency and, and providing care to the most possible number of people with the least number of staff or the least amount of time per person. And so this violence is not only a form of legal violence, but it's also a form of economic violence. Jen Rinaldi references austerity practices as a form of institutional violence. And Linda Steele links disability-specific lawful violence to economic efficiency in elder care. York University researchers Jessica Tykar and Ethel Tungohan have just wrapped up a collaborative project with Filipino long-term care workers and the care work that they did during COVID. Their research shows how racialized female workers also routinely face similar patterns of institutional violence. Jessica and Ethel, what did the women tell you about gaps in worker rights in the long-term care setting and how they should be addressed? So some of them weren't unionized. A lot of them, at the beginning of the pandemic, they weren't receiving any app um, PPEs. They they needed that. They needed that that support and protection from their workplace. And you know, economic pay wasn't enough uh, for for the jobs that they were doing. Um, I recall some care workers talking about how they couldn't even use like the washrooms in their workplaces first paid sick leave, right? A lot of the care workers don't have paid sick leave, uh, especially if they work in a privatized care home. There is a huge difference between a public care home and a private care home. Um, and I think you can also see reports about this, right? The infections were higher in, in certain types of care homes. So there's a larger politics of defunding of privatized care homes or care homes in general uh, that also are affecting the workers as well, right? Um, secondly, um, I think it's also important to note that um, a lot of care workers are put in a weird situation where they need to keep em- getting employed, right? So there's like there's like a labor hierarchy there where if they try to make more demands for more PPEs or even for better scheduling, right? Um, there's always the threat that they would get terminated. Jen and Linda have taken part in community-engaged projects that aim to make direct impacts on the lived realities of their community colleagues. Linda, you've been involved with a group of Australian women who were incarcerated during their youth in a female reformatory and have taken back that specific institutional place as a space of personal and social justice. Tell us about this important project. So the Parramatta Female Factory Memory Project, which brings together healing and meaning-making aspects and the public education aspects, is an opportunity to provide a different 
narrative and to connect that to ongoing issues around child welfare and um, the experiences of women and children in society. And that memory project has been recognised as a site of conscience, which is a place-based memorialisation and community education and um, that is focused on connecting the past to, to the present and future. Can you explain the Sites of Conscience project? Yes, we might refer to Sites of Conscience as grassroots community or survivor-led initiatives that connect places of historical significance to those significance to those communities because they're places of um, you know suffering and trauma or they might be places of you know significant um, resistance but historically significant places to communities and um, connecting those to present day struggles it's about alerting the broader public through place to um, the ongoing relevance of historical um, issues into the present my question for you is, based on your work with the Huronia Project, how should Canadians mark the humanitarian disaster of COVID and long-term care? Because if we don't mark it publicly, I fear it will disappear. Yeah, it is, it is a, like a, a deep moral and public wound. And it does seem like we have some reckoning to do around the, the public memory making that is required of us to acknowledge how, how deep the wound is, like how, how much it's hurt, not just a population of people who are institutionalized, but all the families who've lost loved ones. This is an emergency that probably needs a kind of, of honoring, like the establishment of an orange shirt day that was a gesture and has not been followed up properly since. The first step towards acknowledging that form of institutional violence was to, to build a ritual so that we can cement around a day like our call to responsibility and action. There is so much more that they need to be doing uh, to respond to systemic failures. And, and maybe the first step is these gestures. And a failure to memorialize is an extension of the dehumanization that people experience in long-term care. Like if we can't acknowledge the dead and orient ourselves to correcting that deep wrong, then like we are not acknowledging the, the loss of that life and, and all of that value and potential. Dehumanization is a function of institutional violence and it carries on if we don't remember the people who were victims of it. It's, it's a heavy moral burden, and I feel, I feel I've come to the right person <laughs> to talk about it because you're a philosopher. Of course you can talk about this stuff. I mean, a lot of people can't actually go there. If we want to imagine the rights of, of long-term care home patients, in some instances, those rights are going to involve aging in place or um, aging and dying with dignity in community. And so the kinds of reforms that we require of government-wide maintenance of uh, supports available for aging populations should entail enabling people to like live out their days in their homes, in their communities with supports. So they don't have to be kept in spaces that run the risk of violence. This is definitely about a call for change. 
basically our our main call is for there to be systemic reform in the long-term care and community care sectors. FilipinaCareWorkers.com. And there it's linked to our change.org petition. Megan, you should sign it. Your listeners should sign it. We are sending this petition to the federal government and also provincial governments. And really, you know, we're hoping to get people more mobilized by signing the petition. Our target isn't just policy change, although that's part of it, but also public awareness as well. And I think your project, Megan, helps encourage public awareness of the very real issues that people uh, in LTC homes are facing and also workers in LTC homes are facing. It affects, actually, it affects all of us, right? At some point, we're all going to need care. That's something we need to think about, right? To really elevate this notion of co-resistance. COVID revealed longstanding inequalities. COVID magnified longstanding inequalities. Our long-term care system, as Pat Armstrong has long highlighted, it was about to break through decades of privatization and austerity. It was being patched together through a patchwork of different policies. COVID revealed just how broken the system is. And now really we need to move forward and heaven forbid we have another pandemic again, right? So we've got we've to put in reforms. That is one of the big takeaways from this entire podcast series, that we need to create care-first coalitions. As Doreen Bible, Jen Rinaldi, and Linda Steele make clear, a jumped-up sense of rights and equity need to be central to long-term care. But rights would be wrapped up in a system where care came first. And we will tackle the whole topic of care in our next podcast episode. As Nora says, we need to be smart, act locally, and be very political, because these are not issues that will just vanish with COVID. That's for sure. The next five years will be 100% connected to what we've just lived through. There's no question about that. And Canada will be remade in some way. And the forces that want to keep Canada the way that it is uh, will be doing that with every tool that they have. And, you know, we, we need to get very smart as citizens to understand what changes power and what changes power isn't just education and knowledge. It's it's organizing and organizing means getting together, actually having demands, creating collectives or clubs or roundtables or organizations or federations or whatever. And we need to start threatening politicians in a very serious way because they're too comfortable. And, you know, one of the things that I want to keep doing that I'll keep doing is trying to get that data and make sure people do have the information that they need. But then we need to translate that information into actual action. That was episode three of COVID in the House of Old, hosted by me, Megan Davies. It featured the voices of Doreen Bible, Ethel Tugohan, Jessica Tycar, Nora Loretto, Linda Steele, Pat Armstrong, and Jen Rinaldi. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Cohen Hammond. It featured music by Cohen Hammond, Minja Chen, and Kieran Smith. This project would not be possible without the support of a Jack and Doris Shadbolt Fellowship in the Humanities from Simon Fraser University. Stay tuned for more episodes. Life begins through consequence.
Silent hymns, you silent.